Hi there. This is Neil Satin, the host of Relationship Alive. The Relationship Alive podcast is my offering to you to support you in having the best possible relationship. So if you're finding it to be helpful, please consider a donation to help support the podcast. In order to do that, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And thank you so much for your help in ensuring that we can continue. And today's show is also sponsored in part by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you choose from over 1,500 licensed therapists. Get matched with your perfect therapist who can put you on the path to a happier life and a thriving relationship. For a special offer for you, visit Talkspace.com alive. Also, many of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode require a lot of really great communication between you and your partner. If you're interested in learning how to communicate in relationships so that no matter what you're talking about, the good things or the challenging things, you can become more connected with your partner, then please consider downloading my free guide to my top three relationship communication secrets. To do that, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com relate, or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Okay, I think that's everything. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. How does the way that your parents raised you, especially when you were really young, affect your sex life? Can you be addicted to love or sex? And if so, what does that even mean and what do you do about it? How do you define your own version of healthy sex so that you're not just following along with what culture has handed you? And finally, how do you step away from the dopamine and novelty seeking of dating and when you find someone, make the switch to a monogamous relationship in a way that gives you energy for that one special connection and that helps you resist the temptations of diving back into the rush of the dating world. In today's episode, we are speaking to one of the world's experts on sex and neurobiology, and especially the treatment of sex and love addiction, Dr. Alexandra Katahakis. Alex's book, Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation, is a must-read for therapists looking to understand the latest on how to approach sex addiction treatment and therapy. And her work at the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles fosters a sex-positive approach to rediscovering sex in a way that's right for you. Alex is also the author of Erotic Intelligence, Igniting Hot, Healthy Sex, while in recovery from sex addiction. As usual, we will have a detailed show guide for today's episode, which you can get at neilsatin.com slash healthy sex, or by texting the word passion to the number 33444 and following the instructions. Alex Katahakis, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Thank you, Neil, for having me. It's my pleasure to have you here. And let's maybe set some ground rules right at the beginning, because I've already mentioned your book, Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation. And there's controversy in the world. Is sex, can you be addicted to sex? And how is that different than just enjoying sex? And how would I know if I'm enjoying it or am I, am I addicted to it? Am I addicted to love? Is love a need? It gets confusing. So yeah. perhaps you can help simplify the discourse for us today. Well, let's see, that's a big topic to handle. But um, let's just, you know, when when I think about the word addiction, and I investigated this quite a bit, um, the actual definition of it is a strong predilection for something. So whenever we say that we are addicted to chocolate ice cream, or Pilates, or our cell phones, or Game of Thrones, it means that we have a strong predilection for that thing, so much so that we'd prefer to be doing it 
over anything else. And in fact, we have a slight level of preoccupation. We're thinking about it. We can't wait to do it next. Um, we're wondering what's going on next. And so these are normal human functions. But when it tips over into a preoccupation where it's all you're thinking about and all you're doing is spending all your time in preparation for getting into the experience, um, often there's a secret around the experience or shame around it. Um, or it can be abusive to self or others, and then there's unmanageability or messes that surround it, then you have an addiction or you have a, a problem with um, abuse or something along those lines of the substance or the behavior. And in fact, you know, Helen Fisher has clearly stated in her book, Why We Love, which is an older book now, that love is absolutely an addictive process. And it's, it's evolutionary, it's biological, it's nature's way of getting us to get together with another person um, in such a, a profound and intense way that it binds us for some time so that we can come together uh, and procreate and have children and raise a family. So none of these things are problematic, food, sex, uh, the internet, pornography, alcohol, it's the abuse of them that starts to create problems in people's lives. And in my conversation with Helen Fisher, that became really important as she talked about how when people break up, they're often going through withdrawal symptoms just like you would if you were trying to break an addiction to cigarettes or alcohol. Right. And so um, and that's because our attachment um, processes in the brain and in the autonomic nervous system start to wither. Um, it feels like a limb's been cut off, cut off when we lose someone. The pain is so great because those pain centers are the same pain centers in the brain. Um, when somebody's a love addict, um, and you ask them to start to cut off communication with all the people they're texting and hooking up with and infatuated with, um, it's painful for them. I mean, we do it every day here with people that are in treatment at Center for Healthy Sex, um, where we ask them to start to block numbers or delete numbers of people. And they want to do it because they want to stop this train they're on, but they're in great pain because of it. And it's a bind because they don't want to do it anymore. And the pain they have to suffer of the withdrawal um, is also painful. So, um, People will also argue that you can't be in withdrawal from sex or love, and yet if they have ever spent time with people that have these afflictions, they'll see that there's quite a profound withdrawal process. Yes, and uh, just for you listening, if you want to hear the episode with Helen Fisher, it's episode 88. Oh my goodness. One sec, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, hi, mom? Yeah. I know. Yeah, I said I was going to call you and I forgot. Right. I know. I'm Mom, I'm so sorry. I said I would call. I didn't call you when I said. And right now I'm in the middle of an interview. Yeah. I know it's important. Um Mom, could I could I call you back in half an hour? I will definitely call you back this time. Okay. All right. Great. Thanks, mom. Talk to you later. Love you. Bye. <sighs> and before I do, I just might text my therapist. Today's episode is brought to you by Talkspace.com, where you can send your therapist text, audio, and video messages anytime you want, or even do a live video chat. They make it easy to connect with an experienced licensed therapist that you pick based on your preferences for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy. Talkspace therapists are fully licensed and go through a rigorous screening process, in addition to thousands of hours of supervised professional training. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com alive. And as a special offer for you, you can use the coupon code ALIVE to get $30 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash ALIVE and the coupon code ALIVE for $30 off. Thank you, Talkspace, for sponsoring today's episode. And now, back to the show.
Now, getting back to this question of how would I know if, um, well, I think you answered it actually. It's this question of is is something becoming problematic um, or is it not? And I think that the maybe the deeper question there is if I'm veering toward addiction, maybe I my left brain would be kicking into gear and giving me ample justifications for not thinking it's problematic, that it's actually perfectly justifiable, everything that I'm doing. So how oh, would bet. I know? <laughs> well, um, probably when you start to hear those justifications, <laughs> rationalizations, the way that you minimize, um, deny what's going on, these are higher order defenses. These are the defenses that are very easy um, you know, to shoot spears at, and people quickly say, uh, yeah, right, I get it. Um, those defenses are the ones that um, have to be deconstructed. And people will tell you pretty quickly that they're violating their personal value system. And that's what's at issue here. It's not a moralistic judgment or an attempt to colonize all people to some sort of normative standard. It's about each individual saying, these are what my personal values are. These are what my sexual values are. I'm currently violating a whole bunch of those, and I can't stop doing it um, because the intensity is such. And these become adaptive strategies uh, in the brain. I mean, our brains are highly automatic. And changing these automatic patterns, I say is often like turning a barge around. It's not like turning a speedboat around. It's slow going. Mm. Um, because, you know, the Hebbian theory is that what fires together wires together. And so when you do something over and over and over again, you've got these neuronal firing patterns that create these tenacious neural networks. And we then go on automatic. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. So when people find themselves doing things they don't want to do anymore, or they can't stop doing it even though they want to, then they likely have a problem. Let's set the stage for this um, with some, some thoughts about how our neurobiology develops when we're younger. Because if there was anything that gave me pause, not only thinking about my own upbringing, but also reflecting on how I'm raising my kids, it was reading the sections of your book that are all about the importance of attunement mm -hmm. uh, between caregiver and child. And what happens when uh, ruptures in attachment aren't repaired quickly? Right. And it's not just that they're not repaired quickly, it's that they're chronically unrepaired. So sometimes something can happen with an infant or a child where the parent can't repair it quickly because they're under duress or other things are going on. They do get to the repair. It's when there are these chronic unrepaired um, ruptures or micro assaults when they're on the infant that start to create distorted regulatory patterns. So if I go back a little bit, we're, we're now looking at these problems as deep as the third trimester of pregnancy because there is a neurochemical intersubjectivity between the mother and the infant um, that's taking place in utero. So in other words, if mother is extremely stressed, chronically stressed, um, if she's chronically anxious, depressed, uh, under siege because there's violence in the household, she's going to be releasing a whole host of stress neurochemicals uh, by way of her HPA axis, the major um, stress system for the autonomic nervous system. So cortisol, adrenaline um, are some of the neuro hormones we're most familiar with. So that infant is already being set up under duress. Um, so there's that's one place where it can start. That's why the third trimester of pregnancy is so important for mothers to be tended to because also what's happening is the left brain is starting to recede and the right brain and intuition are starting to become dominant. And in our culture, unfortunately, we don't make a space for women in that stage of pregnancy to be at home, to nest, to prepare um, to be in concert and communication with her infant. Oftentimes we see young women, you know, standing behind grocery store checkout counters and they look like they're going to give birth any second. You know, they're fighting to stand on their feet and think. And so these are big socio-cultural political issues 
that you and I can't get into. Uh, but the point is, the third trimester is where all of this um, starts. Um, so go ahead. Yeah. So, and I'm 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 jumping ahead a little bit to this question of how ideally we learn to regulate through this through the pair bonding with our mother or primary caregivers. So once the infant is born and the primary caregivers are there, it's essential that those caregivers, whether they are males or females or combination or the same of both, um, are attuned to that infant and finding what we call the infant's timing. Because as Alan Shore schools us, the right brain is experience dependent for maturation, meaning that child, that infant needs a high level of contact uh, by way of gaze, by way of the vocalization of the parent, touch, gesture, facial expressions, all of that is assisting that right brain um, to coming online and regulating the, the autonomic nervous system, which is the body. Uh, because the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord, are still nascent. Um, in the brain, we really have just the limbic system in place at birth. So that limbic system is imprinting images from the face of the primary caregiver. And so that attunement is essential. And when the attunement is off, these are micro assaults, it's the job of the caregiver to find the timing of the infant again and bring it back into a regulated state. So the parent is an interactive regulator. They're an external, uh, sort of like an external hard drive, if you want to think about it that way, at least for the first 18 months, because that's how long it takes for the right brain um, to fully start to come into fruition. The left then becomes dominant around 18 months. And so this is where it gets so fascinating, because you talk about how when those repairs are not made, then what happens is our um, parasympathetic response can kick in and actually isolate us as a way of trying to cope with the stress of not being attuned to. Am I, right. am I getting it kind of right here? That's correct. So let's take a look at that. In the yeah. 50s, there was somebody named Dr. Spock who instructed parents to let their children cry it out as a way of sleep training them at night. And lo and behold, the children got quiet, not because they were regulating themselves, but because they were dissociating. Because when you've got high sympathetic arousal, which is the fight or flight mechanism, high activation in the nervous system, the infant is yelling out, because it's its only language for regulation. I need help. My diaper's wet. I'm agitated. I'm scared. Uh, we can give it all kinds of language. And when the caregiver doesn't respond, then the sympathetic branch of the nervous system starts to come up in an attempt to downregulate that arousal state. So both of those systems are at their maximum capacity. And when that happens, there's a freeze state. And at that point, the infant will dissociate, meaning the high right centers of the brain uncouple from the lower parts of the brain. So you've got circuits that are down now, and the infant is essentially in a collapsed state. It's not regulated in that moment. So these are extreme examples, and this is why we now know that borderline personality is made in infancy. And it's not a quote, a, just an attachment or personality disorder, that's a later stage construct. It's a problem of affect dysregulation. Yes. And so your book, Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation, what, I'm, what I got from it, among many things, was how our ability to regulate our affect is so important to recovering from so many different disorders or ways that we check out or aren't functioning the way we optimally would be in in society and in our lives. Right. So when a parent's 
fail in infancy and then later children that grow up in a household that is abusive, typically emotionally abusive is what we see in sex addiction, although we do see physical and sexual abuse, um, you've got multiple layers now of dysregulated affect so that um, the system is down. It's not functioning optimally. It's kind of like when you have to hotwire your car. It'll drive, but it's not the way it's designed to work. So you don't have a securely regulated, therefore ser- securely attached child. And what I'm proposing is that addictions of all stripes get set up very early on. So we can't say this infant or this toddler is going to be an alcoholic or a sex addict. We don't know. There are usually a lot of things along the way that determine that. But their inability to regulate themselves is going to have people reaching for a drug, alcohol, masturbation compulsively, uh, gambling, something to make themselves feel better because they cannot manage their anxiety, uh, depression, or whatever dysregulated affect they have that's chronic now. You know, if, if right, secure- and they've and they've learned to handle that that arousal state or that that over um like the overdrive state they've learned to handle it by dissociating or by being isolated or doing things alone rather than doing things relationally exactly so if you've got a parent who's not safe or who's dismissive or avoidant that child and especially smart kids figure out pretty quickly that they have to manage themselves themselves so those are kids that play by themselves in their room they live in fantasy love addicts always have a rescue fantasy from childhood if you just ask any love addict they'll tell you what it was somebody was going to come get them whether it was a coach a teacher um, a rock star some fairy princess, somebody out there was imaginatively going to come rescue them from the emptiness they were feeling. Mm. And so as so this sets up circuitry in our brains that makes it really easy for us to find something that's not relational that simply helps make the pain go away or the, the unease of being uncomfortable for whatever reason. Right. These become adaptive strategies for soothing. And oftentimes they're maladaptive strategies. Um, In childhood, they serve us living in fantasy. But in adulthood, if we get into a relationship with somebody and we're only in fantasy about who we think that person is and not in reality about who they actually are, because we can't pay attention to those cues, we're going to get into bad or destructive um, or not so good relationships. So now I want to jump for a moment into your model for healing around sex addiction and how you're bridging the gap between left brain work that would that people would use to um, basically stop uh, doing behaviors that are problematic and all the important right brain work that helps rewire the the system for proper affect regulation. Right. So, you know, classically, when we think of addiction treatment, we think of the 12-step model. And many, many people, millions of people have gotten sober uh, in AA and all of its sister programs for decades now because uh, there are studies that show that interactive regulation in a group helps people change their attachment Um, patterns and therefore their regulatory patterns Uh, because people are there for you they're making eye contact they're saying call me let's get together Um, they're helping to mitigate the shame that swaddles addiction and so that is a top-down model in other words it's cognitive first look at what you're doing look at what you're saying look at what your behaviors are and you start to change them and those get deconstructed by the 12 steps when people have to do um, an inventory of their resentments and look at their character defects and it's really deconstructing again these higher order defenses of denial where psychotherapy comes into play in regulation theory is that In therapy, which can't necessarily be done as deeply with a friend, Um, and I always say that if we could get better by ourselves, we'd just sit at home and talk to ourselves, but, (laughs) you know, human beings need other human beings for regulation. Um, 
in therapy, working with a therapist who's working affectively with you, a therapist who's really noticing what's happening in their own body and tracking what's happening in your body and naming that so together you're feeling what happened in the past in the present starts to rekindle or reignite those circuits that went down oh so long ago. And when the circuitry starts to um, recouple, you get more complexity in the system and people go from feeling dull or dead to starting to feel better, more integrated, and even have states of joy and happiness. But this can only happen in relationship with a trusted other. So, and how does that different than the relational experience people get in a 12-step program? Well, I think it's closer in. Um, I think um, in a 12-step program, it's people helping people, addicts helping addicts. In therapy, it's a much closer in attachment relationship because the relationship is, while it's dyadic, it's a two-person dyadic system, um, meaning that the therapist is actively involved in what they're feeling in relation to the person sitting opposite them. It's not the old one-person model where um, I am making analytic um, you know, comments or interpretations about you, or I'm the expert on your life. It's more that together, like the mother and the infant, the therapist is looking for the timing with the patient they're sitting with and starting to have a lived experience of what it feels like to be in that person's presence. So there is a, what Shore calls a right brain to right brain communication or a yes. conversation between limbic systems that is not cognitive, it's not verbal, it's affective. Um, and that's different again from Roger's unconditional positive regard, which was beautiful, but it was still a one person system. It was about him regarding the client, um, but he wasn't in a feedback loop, at least, he wasn't consciously thinking about it that way. It was happening anyway because we are constantly in nonverbal communications with one another. Right. So for him, it was maybe an intention. So it, it almost sounds kind of left brain in terms of an approach. Like I'm going to intend that I'm holding my client with unconditional positive regard, which would have maybe right brain results. Um, but yeah. what you're talking about is starting with an acknowledgement of this right brain to right brain communication dialogue that's happening that gives you as a therapist valuable information about what's happening for your client within their experience. That's right. And it allows for clinical intuition. And the experience in the therapy is about what's happening between you and me right now. What are you noticing as you see me you know, welling up as you tell me this horror story about your life? What does it feel like to have me seeing, not only seeing, but feeling you? What Dan Siegel says, uh, the patient has to feel felt by the therapist. And for some, that's going to be threatening or scary or weird. For others, they're going to say, no one, I've never felt this scene in my life. And in that moment, there is a co-regulation happening between the dyad. It's not just the, the client that's having that experience, but the therapist, too, is changing implicitly in that moment. So how do you bring the things that you're observing in a therapy session, let's say, how do you bring that into the session in a way that's, that's generative? Well, I think by having these kind of conversations where, you know, the patient starts with a story or talking about what's going on and I start to track and notice what I'm feeling somatically or I'm stand I'm hanging out in what Freud called suspended attention just waiting to see what emerges between the two of us and there is something that happens in the intersubjective field that allows for um, emergence to occur so there are m images that maybe pop into my head um, or bursts of laughter and play that get amplified. So it's unique, a unique nonverbal conversation between the dyad that I am, you know, highlighting as we go along. Um, and part of what has to happen is the left largely has to go offline. 
Um, and even when we're in deep, deep trauma with people, the higher reflective capacities of the right have to go down also, so that we're letting ourselves travel into our limbic system and into the deep unconscious, which I think is the body, and seeing what we're feeling. If we're starting to feel a heaviness or a collapse um, or a sense of what it was like for this person or in that household. So it is, there's no um, real technique here. And that's the beauty of regulation theory and what Alan Shore has given us. This is a generic model for healing. Um, we have to understand the theory, but there is no formalized technique. And the truth is anyone can do it if they're willing to dive into their own affective processes and have done their own therapy in such a way that they're willing to be vulnerable in session you know, with the client in a way that can be quite messy. Yeah, I have to admit that this for me is like one of the the cornerstones of couples having presence with each other. So in mm. relationship, actually being able to tune into your somatic awareness and be able to voice that helps people communicate about their experience without like putting all kinds of judgments on top of it or... Um, Right. Yeah, yeah, and and it creates an invitation for for their partner to actually be there with them in that experience. Right, because let's say if you and I are in a relationship and you're saying something and I'm getting activated and I notice that activation and I'm willing to be vulnerable enough to say um, I'm getting really scared right now. There's something about the tone of your voice. Um, it's not, and you might say there's there's nothing wrong with the tone of my voice. I'm just saying this. It's just a matter of fact. And yet my right amygdala is reading danger because you're male and you're angry or you're upset. That is my historical um, encoding of male assertion or aggression. Um, and so if I start attacking you because you're loud or you're angry, I'm not really taking responsibility or looking at, wow, look at how activated I'm getting. This is not my um, father. This is my adult partner in front of me. So as uh, a colleague of mine says, this is a case of mistaken identity. Mm. Um, it's not what's really going on right now. Right. And yeah, so that, that does allow for much more intimacy and compassion between two people when they're not blaming and shaming each other and then escalating uh, the threat detection system. Right, right. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, one of the things that came up for me when I was reading the first part of your book was feeling like the the heaviness of of damage done, like to children, <laughs> to mm -hmm. me, to, you know, to whomever. Um, and so what do we know about the capacity for those systems to heal, to rewire, um, so that we learn more and more how to regulate through our relationships and through attachment? Well, some structures and functions can be revitalized and some cannot. Um, we have neurons um, that if they are, quote, fried before age four, they just don't come back. If you have a borderline personality who's got a borderline, who's got an infant, and that infant becomes borderline, um, in part what that means is you've got very thin axons going from the right orbital frontal cortex down into the amygdala. And there are more regulatory axons going from that part of the brain, uh, from the right orbital frontal down into the limbic system than any other part in the brain. Um, in fact, Shore calls this uh, right orbital frontal area the apex of the limbic system and the attachment control center. So those thin axons make it very difficult for that person to regulate themselves, and those aren't going to grow back. What will grow would be new dendrites in that area. And so if you can move a borderline person to an insecure attachment, you've done a stellar job. Um, and that's why we have DBT, because again, DBT is one of those hot wiring modalities where it's a workaround, uh, where the person has to be conscious, mindful of using their higher cortical functions to manage their emotions, um, and they have to work at it. It has to become habituated. They're never going to be perfect at it, uh, but it's better than where they came from. So this is sort of the good news and the bad news. And my sense in, in reading was that it's probably rare 
the person among us who is not on some level affected by having had some misattunements going on in their childhood. And, and so, so having some level of susceptibility or some, some need for reinforcing secure attachment in adulthood. Well, first of all, my understanding is we have approximately 54% secure attachment in our country today, down from 75% in the 70s. So it is shrinking as we have more and more stressors, um, less two-person systems raising children. Um, So it's challenging. And for many of us, um, our parents were insensitive. They weren't full-on abusive. For others, they were full-on emotionally, physically, or sexually abused. Um, so there are different categories of abuse. But one thing we know um, from the data, and um, you can look at Sue Johnson's work around this, is that people can earn a secure attachment in a love relationship. That's where we get to practice these things. And we're still bound by this happily ever after myth as opposed to buckle your seatbelt. This is when it's really going to get interesting. Um, But being in a long-term relationship is not about, you know, bliss and running through uh, flower fields. It's really about turning up the heat on your own issues. And if you want to, you know, be, uh, not have any issues, then live alone. Um, (laughs) Seriously, get a dog or a houseplant and you'll be fine. Uh, but if you get into a relationship with someone, you will shortly start to see where your issues are. And if it's with someone who shares your values and is willing to hang in there through the pain and discomfort of growing, that's how we start to become more securely attached and love more deeply and have a deeper intimacy with someone. And I believe that our eroticism emerges from that intimacy. Mm, yes. And and fo- just making sure that we're drawing the connection to the first part of our conversation, it's that regulation that is happening with another that can take the place of ways that addictive habits would be used to regulate you. Am I right? Yeah, that is correct. But it's very difficult for someone who's been so avoidant or dismissive, and then they've wrapped an addiction around them. First, they have to get rid of the addiction and start to deal with the dysregulation of not having that thing to run to. Um, That's a very raw state. And that's why I think a fellowship is so incredibly helpful to people because they don't feel alone. You know, and therapists can only do so much. You see a therapist once a week for an hour. But when you have a fellowship, you can make four or five program calls a day. You can get together every day with somebody and go have you know breakfast or get to a meeting so you always have people around you that understand what you're going through because they're going through it too so i think about it as mountain climbers who clip themselves together as they you know traverse a sheer face they've got each other they're together Um, So that's extremely important. And then when people get to the second stage of their recovery, when they haven't been acting out or using for, you know, a good six months or a year, they can start to work these same processes with a partner. Um, And of course, even the touch of sex and sexuality is incredibly healing. I'm curious, like given what you said about how... um, when someone stops the behaviors that they were using, they then get to experience the dysregulation and how uncomfortable and tender they can be in those moments. I'm wondering if we can talk for a moment about the way that we learn to use uh, modern rituals around dating as a way of regulating ourselves. And what seems to be more and more problematic, which is people are getting addicted to um, to the process of dating and finding another person and swiping right and getting that message and getting that hit. And and in a sense, when we ask when someone says like, "Okay, I want a monogamous relationship. I found this person. I'm going to partner with them in order to really. cement, I hate to use that word cement, but to mm-hmm. to firm up the container of their relationship, which is so crucial to safety in a monogamous relationship, right. they then have to turn off all of those addictive behaviors, the checking Tinder, the getting the right. messages from so-and-so. So um, 
what would you what would you suggest for someone under those circumstances who may not say, well, I'm addicted to Tinder? I mean, someone might identify that. But if they didn't, and we were just saying, like, how do you switch from courtship into monogamy, recognizing that you're going to be getting getting your dopamine elsewhere? Like, what's a good way to make that transition, especially when the call of the wild beckons you? And you right. Yeah. Well, we live in a, a culture where there's chronic novelty seeking. There's always something new, shiny or better around the corner. It's overwhelming, in fact. Um, there, there used to be a time when like a scented candle store was really cool. I don't know if you remember that, like, wow. <laughs> and now, you know, there's one on every, like every 7-Eleven and car wash. It's not novel anymore. And there's just so much out there. So first, I think people have to remember, uh, they have to make a commitment that they actually really want a monogamous committed relationship, if that's what they're after. If they're after alternative sexual practices and relationship, that's a different matter. Um, but if they want a committed relationship, they have to be clear about what that really entails. What does that mean for them? Are they up to the task of that kind of commitment? And if so, what are the things that they value the most? And are they willing to make a list of their top three non-negotiables? So that might sound like, um, you know, level of education, spirituality, sense of humor, lifestyle, um, you know, things of that nature, you know, want kids, don't want kids, um, appearance, like the kind of person, the type they're attracted to. Um, and so to get super clear about that. So when they start to date and they find someone who really fits that bill, at that point, they're willing to say to themselves, I'm getting off these dating sites, I'm turning off my social media in that regard. And I'm really going to hunker down and commit to getting to know this person and pay attention to who this person is, not my fantasy of who I want them to be. Um, so if they say they're going to call and they call, that's a good sign. If they say they're going to call and they don't call, you need to pay attention to that. Don't keep giving people second, third, fourth, tenth chances when they're not really showing up. So the key is that you want to feel like you want that person and that they want you in return, that there's an actual volley taking place and that you're finding out who they are in great detail, not making assumptions, meet their friends, meet their family members, pay attention to how this person shows up in your life. Um, and that will be a you know sort of a quick and easy recipe for success. Yes, and while you were saying that, I suddenly had this aha moment, which is that if you in your new partnership are focused on your somatic awareness and being there moment to moment with your partner, then that's the exact kind of regulation that will help you and will be a new way of filling the void left by not getting to swipe left or right anymore, wait right. for that new message to come in. Yeah. Wouldn't you rather have a hug than swipe left or right? I would. I would. And so, <laughs> but so I think it seems like it would be important for uh, someone to notice like what is happening within them when they're, let's say, jonesing for uh, an old flame or mm -hmm. um, to, uh, an, a round of Tinder or whatever it is to notice what's happening in them and to see like, Oh, am I dysregulated right now? And if so, can I, how can I bring that to my partner in a way that creates regulation? Right. So, um, that I think is really wise because those are the moments of intimacy and the moments of truth. And are you tracking your partner? Can you start to see what he or she needs? Are you generous and willing to give it to them? Or do you avoid or run away because they're, quote, too needy? God forbid anybody's needy today. Uh, because human beings, we need each other for these regulatory purposes that you're talking about. So paying close attention to yourself and what you're feeling, reporting those, asking for what you want and need, um, and being able to give what your partner wants and needs as well. 
um, then you're in a very different kind of intimate, close-in relationship. And, you know, people know how to have sex. We put a lot of attention on sex and how to have sex and Cosmos still, you know, a million years later, a magazine always has like hot sex tips. It's like, how many more hot sex tips are there? Um, People know how to put their bodies together. But the challenge today is can we put our hearts and souls together um, in a way that has meaning to us, that is safe, that we can trust, that also becomes arousing and erotic as a result of that, as opposed to just lunging at the erotic. Um, and then you wake up three months later and you've been having like all this crazy sex, but you have no idea who this person is or if you even like them. Mm, right. And that's especially when the novelty is worn off and the dopamine's right. no longer working for you. And yeah. Um, Alex, we only have a few minutes left. I want to just let everyone know that we'll have a detailed show guide for this episode, which you can get by visiting neilsatin.com slash healthy sex. And we will have links to related episodes as well as to um, Alex Katahakis's books um, and her website so you can follow up with her. Um, Alex, you run the Center for Healthy Sex and... I think we got to spend at least the last couple minutes talking about how does someone uncover healthy sex for themselves and get related, like re redevelop what their sexuality even is so that it's uniquely theirs and not a product of culture or influence or right. neglect. Well, even the notion of healthy sex sounds normative because what's healthy for me is not healthy for someone else and vice versa. So um, I um, am creating a health uh, a, a workbook right now specifically for this issue um, on how to celebrate one's sexuality and by going through some very pointed questions about different dimensions of healthy sex, the physical, the emotional, uh, the relational, the spiritual, etc., um, so that we can start to tease out questions of what do I really know about my, first of all, my sexual functioning? What's my arousal cycle at this point in time? Not what it was when I was 20, because it's different 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70s. Our sex lives and our attractions and our desires change over time. So we have to get clear with ourselves and honest with ourselves about um, our arousal cycle. Um, and then how do we talk about our genital functioning? Do we know how our genitals work? Um, what do we like physically? What's arousing? What feels good? What kind of touch, rhythm, etc.? And then what are our personal and sexual values? And then do our sexual practices align with those? Or are we violating ourselves by saying yes when we really don't want to do that thing? Or we don't want to do it because we have some shame or limitation. So let's tease that out and see what's really true here for you at this stage. So to answer your question, I think healthy sex requires a deep investigation of who you are sexually today and what you like and how do you put together kind of a new plan or new idea for yourself. Um, I think that can be very exciting and enlivening for people when they realize that, oh, um, for example, there is a whole new world of vibrators out there for women today. Um, this is not your mother's vibrator. There used to be these, these kind of funky old flesh colored, like hard plastic things. And now um, young women who are engineers and designers are creating these gorgeous vibrators in all these beautiful colors. They are cancer-free. They don't have um, any kind of carcinogen in them. Um, they're super discreet. They fit in your purse. Um, they work in all these different ways. And when women start to um, realize that they have access to these things in terms of being responsible for their own orgasm, their own pleasure, um, it gets kind of fun and exciting because it's sort of like having a new pair of shoes or a new piece of jewelry. <laughs> um, it's no longer this, you know, kind of shady thing you have to be ashamed of. And that can be incredibly liberating for someone. Um, and then coming out from any kind of sexual dysfunction also. So these are big, deep conversations that I think we all owe to ourselves to have. Yes, and I hope that we can do a follow-up at some time because we could certainly talk about this for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, do I have time to ask you one last quick follow-up? Uh, sure. Okay. So I'm curious because... When people are wrapped up in, let's just call it a cultural escalation, or as you called it, uh, chronic novelty seeking, um, you might have 
an idea about what your sexuality is that's actually driven by having been on that dopamine cycle and be exposing yourself to increasingly more novel and novel things. So how do you get some space from that so that you can localize with what's actually true for you versus just activating your dopamine? Well, I recommend that people take a period of celibacy and it can be a week, a month, you know, whatever, two months, 90 days, just so they can sort of clear the decks and notice how um, adaptive that strategy has become, how impulsive it is, how much I have to have that, as opposed to, huh, if I didn't do that, if I didn't ejaculate or have an orgasm, what else might I be feeling right now? And how much of what's encoded in my head is encoded from years of internet pornography watching, which is a whole different matter because pornography addicts are different than sex addicts. Um, and so can I sort of cleanse my palate, which is really the brain, because the brain is still the biggest sexual organ in the body. It gets aroused seconds before the genitals do. Um, can I look at if it's my trauma, especially for women, oftentimes women that are sex and love addicts are really driven uh, by sexual abuse, overt or covert in their childhood. And they're engaging in behaviors that are detrimental to them um, in some cases. Um, and when they get through, quote, the recovery process, afterwards, they might find that they're still into, say, the BDSM activities, um, because they're aroused by being submissive, but it's no longer from a place of dissociation or being unconscious, or reenacting their trauma, it's now a choice, because their arousal system, the autonomic system is geared towards sort of high um, input. And so, once that's the case, that's very difficult to change. And there's no need to change it if it's a choice and there's not shame involved in it. Um, and so these, again, are sort of subtle slices. Some people might like shame in sex because it's part of what's arousing for them, but they're choosing it as opposed to engaging in behaviors that feel you know, humiliating, shameful, and then they feel like garbage afterwards um, because it's a trauma reenactment. Right. So so it requires, again, a lot of pulling these pieces apart. And sometimes just going on a sexual diet for a period of time is what's required. Got it. Excellent, excellent way to, I think, wrap up our conversation. So uh, I want everyone to write me a month from now and tell me how your month of celibacy went, <laughs> what you've discovered. <laughs> Right. Um, Alex Katahakis, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. Your work is so important and powerful and transformative, and I just really appreciate how you're showing up in the world to help make it uh, healthier for people in their sex lives and in recovering from things that aren't serving them anymore so that they can be vibrant and healthy and engaged in life and especially in their relationships. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for celebrating healthy sexuality. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive? either for a future or past guest, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.